There was an old Peanuts cartoon. I, I enjoy Peanuts cartoons. I don't know how many of you enjoy them. But there was an old Peanuts cartoon in which Charlie Brown overhears Sally Brown saying, I hate this world. I hate everybody on this planet. And I hate everything about life on this planet. To which Charlie Brown responded by saying, but I thought you had inner peace. Sally says, I do have inner peace. It's just that I still have outer obnoxiousness. Well, contrary to what Sally may think about herself, truth be told, her outer obnoxiousness may have been telling her more about her heart than what she really wanted to know. You know, throughout the, uh, the course of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels as a whole, but even specifically as we're looking at Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he has so much to say about, you know, behind all the image projecting that we do in our lives— about how our words and our behaviors can so often be a true indicator as to the real condition of our hearts. We can, we can put this projection of ourselves out there, and yet how we live that out really says more about what we believe and who we are than, than what we simply um, want people to, to believe that we are or believe that we believe. And I, I think about this in re- reality in light of where we're headed today, as we're continuing in our series, The Good Life, looking at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically as we've been in the early part of Matthew chapter 5, looking at the Beatitudes, what we often call the Beatitudes. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says these words, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You know, as we talked about, especially early on in this series, as we kind of set the stage for everything that, that is going on in, in um in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, setting the stage for Jesus' teachings and his words that, uh, that we've gotten into over the last couple of weeks. But we talked about early on how Jesus comes onto the scene and he, he begins in Matthew chapter 4 by declaring that the kingdom have, of God, the kingdom of heaven, has come near. That the saving and delivering and difference-making power of God is not just in heaven and it's not just after we die, but it's come near in the form and the person of Jesus Christ. Christ. And in the first part of Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus begins to talk about, as again I said, what we often call the Beatitudes, in so many ways he begins to unpack what that means. You know, just what it means for the kingdom of God to come near, for the kingdom of God to come near to those who are poor in spirit, to come near to those who mourn, to come near to those who are meek, to come near to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to those who are merciful, as we talked about last week, and then as we're going to look at today, what it means for the kingdom of God to come near to the pure in heart. So what does that mean? What what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the pure in heart? I'm not going to profess like I know every answer to this, but I'm giving you the best is what I understand it to, uh, what I understand Jesus to be telling us. The the concept of purity in and of itself is one that you see quite a bit in in Scripture. You read through the pages of Scripture, you're going to see this idea of, of purity quite a bit. And it's it's, it's, it's really used to refer to a myriad of different things, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For instance, sometimes when Scripture speaks of purity, it's talking about a ceremonial purity. Uh, many of you have uh, read that as you start maybe your Bible reading plan. You start in the Old Testament, and you get through Genesis, and then you get into Exodus, then you start getting into Leviticus, Right? which is where you usually give up on your Bible reading plan for the rest of the year, <laughs> you know, or maybe start to do something else. But you, you read a lot in those, in those books about this, this ceremonial purity that, that God institutes. This is what you, again, find in a lot of the Old Testament where Scripture speaks of foods that are pure and, and clean and 
foods that are impure and unclean. Uh, ceremonial purity also refers to or involves people bathing or washing themselves before making a particular sacrifice or before going into a particular place. And that was a, a, a lot of, or a way of, of ceremonially purifying themselves. You read that again a lot in the uh, early on and, and kind of sets the stage for what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Another kind of purity that Scripture speaks to is not ceremonial purity, but, uh, or not just ceremonial purity, but moral purity or behavioral purity. Purity, being pure in how we act and, and how we live our lives. There are places in the New Testament where purity refers to one's behavior, even one's thought life as to whether it is pure or impure. And certainly many times when you read through the New Testament, it talks about purity. Very often it's talking about sexual purity and how we keep ourselves pure from, from that standpoint. And certainly it can refer to that, but it also refers to uh, many other things as well in our lives. And while those are important parts of purity, I wanted to bring them up so that we kind of understand the, the full scope in some ways of purity. Uh, when Jesus talks about the pure in heart here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, I don't think he's addressing ceremonial purity and I don't think he's specifically addressing behavioral or moral purity, although as we'll talk about and as you'll see, moral purity, behavioral purity will be a byproduct of this other purity that I think Jesus is referring to. Because rather than those types of purities, I think specifically what Jesus is really referring to here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 is, is, is a, an, another aspect of purity that we find in the Bible, and that is how undiluted something is. Hence, if you've got your notes section, you see undiluted and undivided. Um, how undiluted, how undivided something is as to how that equates to its purity. In particular here, Jesus is speaking of the idea of our hearts being undiluted. For instance, in that culture, wine was considered pure if nothing was added to it to water it down to make it go further, right? Many of you remember the story of Jesus turning the water into the wine, and what does the host of the party say? You know, most people save the best wine, or uh, put out the best wine first, and then they save the watered-down version for the last when people's senses have been dulled, their taste buds have been dulled. And so that was a way of being, you know, the purer the wine, um, you know, the, 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 the more uh, impure or the more undiluted it was. A leper was considered pure if he could demonstrate to a priest that he was cured and that he had no disease diluting his body. Gold was considered pure and still is considered pure if it has no other traces of other metals or impurity within it. And I would suggest here in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8, Jesus is in essence saying, blessed are the undiluted, blessed are the undivided, the single-minded in heart, for they will see God. So let's dive into that idea just for a few moments. And remember what Jesus is doing before he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I wanted to spend some time getting into that in our first couple of weeks. And if you haven't been here with us or you haven't listened to that, I'd encourage you to go back. It kind of sets the stage for a lot of what we've talked about uh, and kind of understanding the context in which Jesus says these words. But remember what he says in the opening words of, of the Sermon on the Mount, or before he says the opening words in the Sermon on the Mount. You go back to Matthew chapter 4, what's he doing? He's healing all of these people who are sick and diseased and tormented and suffering. And we spent some time 
talking about the world in which the sick in that culture lived and how when you were sick or you're dealing with all these things that those people in Matthew chapter 4 were dealing with, it was more than just experiencing physical suffering, which that alone is, is not fun. Many of you have gone through debilitating diseases or prolonged seasons of illness or, or lifelong seasons of illness. You know how debilitating those things can be. But on top of that, you also had, in their word, very much a, a financial suffering that they were having to undergo. On top of that, you were cut off from your family, from society, because that's how you dealt with things. You just cut people off. They, they were sent away. They were in their own, you know, they, they were many times stranded or alone or deserted. And so they, they, they didn't have society and people around them because that's how you manage the, the disease or the illness. And even more than that, as we talked about, you were living under the mindset that because of your sickness or your sickness was a result of God abandoning you because of something that you had done, some sin that you had in your life, or some sin that your, your parents had in their lives. And so when you were chronically ill in that culture, there was very little hope to have any kind of future on the planet. I mean, it was a very depressing place to be. Now, suppose that you are chronically ill, and you've caught man, caught wind that there is a man who can heal you. Now, he's controversial to some. Even his own religious leaders don't really know what to do with him. The Roman government even holds him a little bit suspect. It could be risky if you come to him. But do you think any of that would matter if, he, if you knew he could heal you or your spouse or your child or a loved one? The only thing that would matter to you is getting to Jesus, Right? Regardless of what anyone else may think, regardless of what the obstacles in front of you may be. Why? Because suffering and desperation have a way of producing a single-mindedness within a person. If they see potential relief, if they see a way out to where they pursue that relief, they pursue that way out wholeheartedly. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know some of you have been in those places where it is just a single-minded devotion. Other concerns, other interests, what others might think, they just fall by the wayside. And it could very well be that the, the sick who Jesus has just healed in Matthew chapter 4 were an illustration of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, that their hearts were undiluted, they were undivided, they were single-minded when it came to seeking him and the kingdom of God. And the result is they were healed. They saw God. They saw his power at work in their lives in a very real way. On the flip side, a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus gives us a couple of examples of what an impure heart looks like, what an, a divided heart looks like. For instance, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, and we'll get to this in uh, several weeks, but Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says things like this, verses that you, many of you are probably familiar with. He says in verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Verse 2, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Why? So that others can see them. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. 
couple of things to notice here. First, over and over, Jesus tells his disciples not to be like those who are giving and praying and fasting to be seen by others. He's not telling his disciples not to give, pray, and fast, okay? Don't misunderstand that. He's saying don't give, pray, and fast like those who are doing it to be seen by others. What's going on here? They're doing some of the right things, right? They're giving, praying, and fasting. They're looking the part. But they're doing it with wrong motives in their hearts. Their hearts are diluted. Their heart for God is watered down and divided by a concern for other things. They're more focused on others as their audience and what others think than they are with God as their audience and what God thinks. Now look at the second half of Matthew chapter 6 where I think we see another example of what would be an impure or diluted or divided heart. In verses chapter, or chapter 6 verses 19 through 33, Jesus talks to his disciples about their relationship with money and material possessions and, and this human tendency that we all, ha- all have to be either uh, have an anxiety associated with them, a tendency towards being anxious about them, whether we have it or don't have it or want more of it, or, and or to be consumed with a pursuit of those things. And so he says things like this in verse 19. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't store up for yourselves things on earth, because in the end, they're they're all going to be gone anyways. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, this verse many of us know, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Again, you see that divided nature, language. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. And then Jesus wraps it all up by saying these words, starting in verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And listen, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's not like he's oblivious to all of this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Generally speaking, I'm not going to say all the time, but generally speaking, in a lot of cases, when our hearts are diluted when our hearts are watered down, when our hearts are divided, when they're not single-mindedly devoted to God and His kingdom, it's usually due to one of two things. If we can just boil it all down, it's usually due to one of two things. It's either due to or associated with being concerned with what others think and how others perceive us and the image that we are portraying, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, or our hearts are diluted by issues that are associated with our anxieties or our preoccupations with money and material possessions, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. You, if, you, if, your heart, if, if, if your heart is divided, if it is diluted, it's usually due to one of those two things. And we can also do kind of a reverse on that. Those are things that we need to be constantly evaluating, right? To see where our heart is and and the impurities that are taking over our hearts. Those, I think, are the two primary things that dilute and water down and divide our hearts for God. Now, go back to the example of an undiluted heart that I pointed out earlier in Matthew chapter 4. The sick that Jesus has just healed right before he gets to preach, gets up to preach the Sermon on the Mount. They were undiluted. They were undivided. They were wholehearted in their seeking of God and his kingdom. 
as Jesus declared that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, here's the question I have for you. What's the difference? What's the difference between the two groups? The ones that Matthew or Jesus describes here in in Matthew chapter 4, uses an example of after he heals them in Matthew chapter 4, and everybody else, the the ones whose hearts are diluted, the ones whose hearts are impure. Well, obviously, that's an easy answer on the surface. One is diluted, one's undiluted, one's divided, one's undivided. But what makes the difference? And there's probably a lot of things that go into this, but... uh, I would say one of the biggest differences that we see that leads to impurities in our lives being burned away, as I'll mention here in just a second, the biggest difference is suffering and adversity. Now, that's probably not what you wanted to hear because we don't like to hear those things as being good things. Uh, We like to hear the other things that produce God's purities in us. But I think one of the biggest things that helps to bring about those impurities being burned away in our lives is, is suffering and adversity. Here, in fact, here's the first point. I, I think adversity has a way of burning away our other allegiances. Allegiances. The suffering and adversity that you experience, now it can go the other way too, right? But suffering and adversity just has a way of burning away those other allegiances of our hearts towards the approval of others or toward a concern with money or material possessions or whatever it may be that's distracting us and diluting our hearts for God. Think about this. When a substance is diluted with something, it's mixed with something else, right? It's not pure. It's mixed with something else. So question, how do you undilute something? How do you you undilute that, that, um, that substance? How do you separate the substances from one another? Answer, you heat the substance up, right? You heat it up. Heat has a way of separating what's mixed together so that one substance, once it's separated from the others, can be removed. And through the fire and heat of suffering and adversity, a diluted heart can be purified to where it becomes single-minded and undiluted in its focus on God and his kingdom. Suffering and adversity, as much as we don't like them, truly can be and often are a refinery for a diluted human heart. They burn away our preoccupations and our obsessions with so many other things and so many other allegiances in our lives other than God. And I think that's in many ways what's happening with those who are sick and suffering that Jesus heals right before the Sermon on the Mount. They're consumed with one thing and one thing only, getting to Jesus. Getting to Jesus. And that's so convicting to me because I think about the last time that I was truly concerned with one thing and one thing only, getting to Jesus. i got to be honest with you, I'm consumed with a lot of things with one thing and one thing only, but oftentimes it's not Jesus. But they were single-mindedly devoted to getting to Him, to getting to Him for relief and hope and healing and deliverance. Now, I hope you don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that suffering and adversity are inherently spiritual things. Nor am I saying that that suffering and adversity are, are, are things that God just automatically causes to purify our hearts. And that's the only thing that God causes to purify our hearts. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm also not saying that, that suffering and adversity are some kind of magic bullets that purify our hearts. It doesn't always work that way, right? 
Many of us can testify to that as well, because the reality is there's, there's plenty of people on this planet and plenty of people right now in this church building who have gone through suffering and adversity, myself included, and we have emerged just as ungodly as we did before we went through it, right? Now, hopefully we learn from those lessons and we, and, and we allow God to purify our hearts, but it, it doesn't always mean that we allow him to do that. I'm simply saying that in so many cases, suffering and adversity are conducive to putting you and me in a position for the things that are diluting our hearts to be burned away. We become single-minded and focused on our king and his kingdom. And that has a lot to do with our capacity to be able to see God. And we see a lot of things in our Christian walk. Are we truly seeing God? And are, God, are people truly seeing God in us, which also has an effect on how we see God? And Jesus says that that will happen. That's what will happen for the pure in heart, the undiluted in heart. They will see God. Now, ultimately, that refers to us one day when this world is gone or you and I pass away before Jesus returns, whichever happens first. One day we will see God. For those of us who are in Christ, we will experience his presence when we are in heaven and see him face to face. But I also think, as we've talked about throughout this series, this has to be referring to something in this life, in this world something that happens on this planet. And when it comes to suffering and anxiety, or suffering and adversity, not anxiety, that probably comes with it too, but uh, suffering and adversity, I think there are a couple of, of ways that we can see God. Certainly, one of the ways that we can see God is, is through seeing Him bring resolution, seeing Him bring a solution to a certain situation, or bring healing out of a certain season of suffering and adversity in our lives. And I've seen and, and, and talked with so many people who have seen and experienced God's presence in just those very times. But also, I don't think it's just on the back end that we experience and see God and his hand at work in our lives. Because I've also talked to so many people, some of you, uh, who, who have experienced and seen God so clearly and in so many ways right in the midst of the suffering and the adversity right in the fire of it. And I think part of that has to do with the kind of eyes that we're seeing with, that we're looking through. Their sight was unhindered by anything else. They weren't concerned with what people thought about them or, or other allegiances that they may have had. They weren't concerned with money or preoccupation with stuff or how do I get more of it or why don't I have more of it. They weren't concerned with those things. Their vision was clear. And it was focused on God because of the situation they were in. Of course, on the flip side, we also see that sin and all the junk in our lives, other concerns, other allegiances, all of those things prevent us from being able to see and have that clear vision. So often when we have diluted and impure hearts, it leads to diluted and impure vision. And it prevents us from being able to see God Clearly, they work against each other, even able to see others clearly. I mean, you think about what happened with Jesus. You see this play out in his life. Ultimately, many of the religious leaders don't see God in Jesus. So even though he's doing all of these incredible things, they don't see God in Jesus. Why? Because their hearts are diluted with other things. They're too afraid of losing what they have that they can't see God, even though God in the flesh is standing right in front of them. And that's why so often we see God most clearly when we realize we have nothing to lose. 
We have nothing to lose. When there's nothing diluting our hearts, when our hearts are undivided in our focus on God and His kingdom. But those who are in such dire need and so broken, poor in spirit as we talked about a few weeks ago. They were so desperate for God and what His kingdom brings that there was nothing else that had leverage on their hearts. Their hearts were undiluted. Their hearts were single-minded when it came to Jesus. And eventually, they truly do see God. They experience God in real and tangible ways because our hearts being undiluted in so many ways has so much to do with us being able to see God and experience his presence in our lives. Maybe that's why Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. And maybe that's why Jesus calls our attention so often to the purity of our hearts. And in light of that, let me give you a few takeaways, just three takeaways when it comes to seeking an undiluted heart. And the first is this, seeking an undiluted heart means pursuing a single-minded devotion. I know I've hinted around this. I haven't really hinted around this. This is really what we've been hammering at all morning. It's this single-minded Devotion. Now, that doesn't mean that other things can't be on, you know, in our, in our, in our minds. We can't have other interests. I'm not saying that. But, but what is it that you are devoted to? Even that passage we looked at earlier, you cannot serve both God and money. You're going to follow something. You're going to serve something. You're going to pledge your allegiance to something. What is it? What is it? And Jesus makes it clear that seeing God and experiencing God has more to do with a heart righteousness than a rules righteousness. That's why in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking about the Pharisees, and he says they're doing all the right things, they're looking the part. They go to church, they give, they pray, they fast. I mean, they, they look the part, but they're doing it from the wrong motives. They're doing it to be seen by others. His concern is, is, is not what's going on on the outside, although, again, that, that is a byproduct oftentimes, but he's concerned with what's going on on the inside. Because in the long run, that's where real transformation takes place. Real transformation happens from the inside out, from the heart. I love what Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. <coughs> guard your heart. Why? Because everything flows out of it. Everything flows out of it. Our heart is the control center of our lives. We live from our hearts for better or for worse. And that's why we're called to pay such careful attention to the condition of our hearts. And that's why seeking an undiluted heart means pursuing a single-minded devotion. Here's the second thought. Seeking an undiluted heart really is the path to authenticity. It really is the path to genuine true authenticity. When we're seeking a heart righteousness and not just a rules righteousness, not only does it bring transformation, but it also brings authenticity in our lives. What's on the inside is what's coming on the outside. The two aren't divided. The the two aren't different from each other. How many of you recognize this um, acronym? If you raise your hand. I figured you would, Mike. (laughs) Um, It's an old computer acronym. acronym. Uh, It stands for what you see is what you get. Now you probably recognize it. 
the acronym first started back in the late 70s when personal computers were just starting to come out. And it was a user interface that allowed the user to view something very similar to the end result up on the screen. So that, you know, people were having problems with they would create something and then they'd go to print it out and it wasn't matching up to what they were seeing on the screen. And so it allowed you to, to see more closely how things correlated between what you saw on the screen and what you got out on the printed page. And so what you see is what you get uh, came to be a way of, of talking about how well you could match what you saw on the screen with what you got in real life, right? Here's the deal. A lot of us put on our best faces when we come into places like church or when we're around certain people. And I'm not even saying that a lot of times that's because we're trying to deceive people. I think some of it is, some of it may be that. You know, some people may walk into a church building and they live a completely different life than what they live when they walk in these doors. But I think some of it is we also recognize that's the person I'd like to be. I want to be this person. And, and I struggle with that sometimes, but I, I, I want to put that image on because I, I do want to be that person. The danger, though, <coughs> is that when we settle for projecting the image and working on the image without giving attention to what's going on on the inside into our hearts, what often happens is that when situations arise in our lives, when we speak or act from the heart, what people get in their hands isn't always matching up with what we're putting on the screen of our lives. Because we live day by day from our heart. And no amount of image management will hide the heart. And so if you want to be the real thing, how long ago was that advertisement? That was Coke, right? You want to be the real thing. Or was it Diet Coke? I can't remember. Anyway. If you want to be the genuine article, then that involves pursuing an undiluted heart, a relationship from the inside out. And a pure heart will lead to a pure life so that what you see is really what you get. That's why pursuing an undiluted heart is the path to authenticity. And here's the third and last point, last takeaway. Seeking an undiluted heart involves seeing the heart doctor. And no, I'm not talking about finding the best cardiologist in the area, although that's probably not a bad idea either, you know. But the fact is that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. That's what we talked about throughout this series, how all of these, these, these beatitudes work together. And so often goes back to the very first one, the poor in spirit, just recognizing that you are broken, that we all are broken. This world is broken, and you and I don't have what it takes. And so often, this dilution comes from us thinking that we have what it takes and projecting this image that we do have it all together. And then we look at each other and we say, I know I don't have it together. I know you don't have it together. Why are you projecting this? And the world looks at us like we're fools because we project ourselves to have something that we don't. Not in and of ourselves, but we do have in Jesus. Now, we can participate in the care and nurturing of our hearts, but the answer to the problem of our hearts cannot be found in and of ourselves. That's why you go back to a guy like David. David messes up big time, multiple times, but especially one of the ones that you probably think of, and I do as well, is, is with Bathsheba, right? 
takes another man's wife, sleeps with her, then has him killed. And after this whole ordeal, and he's brought to, you know, basically the light of his sin is, is made known to him. He, he can't see it because he's so diluted, right? He's so divided. But after he gets it and after he sees it, he doesn't just pray to God for forgiveness for his behavior. He goes a step further. Listen to what he says. Listen to what he prays in, in Psalm chapter 51, verse 10. Create in me a pure heart. Father, don't just forgive me, but create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or listen to another prayer by David, Psalm chapter 86, verse 11, when he says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And then I love from the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36, it's God who tells us that he's in the business. He is the heart doctor, and he's in the business of heart transplants through Jesus Christ. He says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And a spiritual heart transplant along with a good, healthy spiritual diet and some ongoing spiritual exercise can go a long way in making a difference in you. And a difference in you can lead to a difference being made through you in the world around you. Because God doesn't simply desire just for you to see him, but he desires for others to see him through and when it comes to the impact a Christ follower can make, there is absolutely nothing like the real thing. But it begins by addressing the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so blessed are the undivided, the undiluted, the pure in heart, for they will see God.